Category is mental health. Category is it takes a village. Category is motherfucking stories over stigma. Wow. So that was weird. It's been two months since we've been on the air. And and I'm just excited to be back now. For sure. Yes. Yeah, it's it's been a while. It's it's been a while. So just excel a little bit. And um, do you want to tell people what's been going on? I would. Yeah. So um, I had. Well, before we stopped recording, you guys knew that I was having medication issues and um, they got worse. They got a lot worse. Um, it got to the point where we tried to go on, like they changed my medication back from Latuda to Lamictal and then we added Wellbutrin and then um, we went to go on vacation for spring break and... I was so messed up that I told Steven to just take the boys and to leave me home. Like I knew I was going to ruin the trip. I just knew it. And the whole trip, I was very paranoid. Um, I very much wanted to run away. Uh, I had planned to catch a train and go home. Like it just craziness. And then when we got to our final destination, um, I mean, I guess I'd lost sense of reality. Um, yeah. Yeah, you did. You, you, you lost a little bit of reality. I thought people were following me. I thought people were poisoning my medication. I, I was seeing things that weren't there. Um, yeah, it was bad. It was real bad. And again, I was going to run away. I was going to get on a boat this time and run away. Um, they upped my Lamictal while I was on the trip. It wasn't working. I mean, it was sort of kind of working. I was getting a little bit better. So they upped me up to 300 milligrams. And then when I got home, I went I went manic. Um, spent way too much money. And she just wasn't well. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's touch and go. And they started me on a... A brand new medica- medication. Yeah, that's true. Valar. Valar. It started me on Valar. So, yeah, it's just, it's been crazy. And that's why we haven't been here and we haven't been recording because I can't do both. Right. And, Joe, did, did you make it on? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me okay? Oh, now it's perfect. Yeah, no, all that other stuff doesn't matter. It didn't happen. Um, yeah, you know, we were just kind of getting everyone caught up on, uh, you know, what happened with Rebecca. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and, you know, it's interesting because at, when it got it to its worst, you know, I had reached out and I was like, Joe, I don't know what to do. And, oh, yeah, that uh, was when I was going to go live at work. Yeah, that's when she was going to go live <laughs> at work, which, you know, it, that was a scary moment, which kind of then leads into the show we recently recorded or this week's show, which was pre-recorded. Um uh, you know, we did give it a name. I, I gave it a name. Well, I tried to be pithy. Oh, Leos are your heroes. Yes. I think that's what- yes, <laughs> yes. Joe, 
Leo meaning law enforcement <laughs> officer. officer. Tell them what it means. Yeah. Your Leo <laughs> is your hero. I think yes. that would be the name of the show. Yes. <laughs> so we had a great discussion, right, Joe? We had a great discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was, I think it was poignant considering you were on the other side of it too, huh, Rebecca and Steven? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because when I was going to go live at work, he was on his way to call the, call the police. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and just, you know, we were trying to problem solve as far as, okay, if we do this, what's the, the outcome of that? If we do that, what's the outcome, you know, and, and it's so hard when, you know, you, Stephen and I, we, we know what we're looking at and, and working with, right? But I, I, I just kept thinking, I can't imagine a family member or someone trying to navigate this on their own. And, and you know, it was, it was scary, right? And, and trying to figure out how could we best, you know, make sure that, you know, you and Rebecca were safe and, and um, trying to figure out what to do, you know? It's very true. I mean, Stephen and I are very privileged in the fact that, like, we know good people like, and Mm -hmm. we have a very strong support system. And so when things like this happens, we're not just all on our own. Whereas there are some people who are just all on their own. Right. Right. Absolutely. And they don't, they don't have a good support system and uh, you got to feel blessed to have that. Yeah. And, and I think that was, you know, at least for me, that was scary. And, and being in this, you know, in this career field and, and doing this for a living, you know, there are moments like, I'm like, okay, Steven, go do this. And then call me back. And then sitting on the couch going, this is, this is terrifying. Like, I don't even know what to do. Do I get in the right. car? Do I like, like, what do I do? And, and, um, and privilege is a good word. Right. And, and so I, I'm so glad that the one thing that came out of this show is if nothing else, to try and demystify the process, you know? No, that's, I I think that's very good with the show, you know, and I've been in this, I've been on the opposite end of this situation too with my brother and like when he's in crisis and, you know, Sarah made a very good point in, in the show, but like nobody knows their behavioral health phone number, but we all know 911. And so like when he's in crisis, the the first thing that I think of to do is to call the police, you know, but there's always that fear of, well, what is going to happen? You know, is it, is it, is he not going to be compliant and then it's going to get ugly or are they trained in mental health? And so this show is, is really nice because it kind of answers some of those questions. Yeah. And I think Sarah, I think Sarah is on. I, I think this is Sarah. Yes. Sarah. <laughs> Well, we have to invite her. Ah, okay. We'll see if she clicks on it. Yeah. I think that's Sarah. Hi, all. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. Hey, Sarah. I'm so sorry. I was having some technical difficulties, but I am here. <laughs> and I've been listening. <laughs> well, that's that's okay, because we were looking. We saw this the gibberish, the, the, the letters, I-C-B-J-Y, and sometimes it's someone who is bombing the show. Yeah, we've <laughs> had that happen before, too, so we have to be careful. Yeah, no, sorry. I'm trying to get was trying to do it too fast and everything else. So I'm here now. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I you know, it I thought it was a great show. And Sarah, what was your take on uh you know, on on the recording with uh Sergeant Chad uh Matthews? I mean, very 
it was awesome. He was very knowledgeable. He was incredibly, you know, the work that he's doing um, is so needed, right? It, it's so needed. Um, and like I said on the show, and, and Rebecca, you kind of, you, you brought it up too. Everyone knows, people only know 911. They don't know their behavioral health number. And, um, you know, my work at the police department for a few years, that was the common scenario where people were just trying to look for help and support for their loved ones. And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, the only option is to call 911, right? And that's not a great option. Right, right. So anyway, just to kind of set up the show, um, you know, uh, I don't know, Joe, how do you want to, how should we proceed with setting up the show? We should talk a little bit about just kind of the importance of spreading the word um, of having a sort of a strategy for, you know, mental health calls within law enforcement. And it's great to really promote and highlight what they're doing in Montgomery County and then also what they're, with, what they're doing in California. Um, and how do we spread the word so that more departments actually, uh, you know, adopt the strategy? Yeah. Um, well, thanks for asking. I think, uh, there's there's so much here um and what i loved is you know you and rebecca and i want to say um on another show maybe season two but don't hold me to that um <laughs> talk, talked about stories over stigma and i think i've stolen it and i keep using it um but mm -hmm. i think that that's really i'd love for people to who are listening to hear hear it from that perspective whether it, that's people that are are working through bipolar or have family members or you know we I hope we have first responders law enforcement and people who are doing crisis management listening to the show as well because really my takeaway from it and and talking with Sergeant Matthews and Sarah um, and and just just from you know Rebecca your recent experience is the more we talk about this, the more education, psychoeducation that we do, the more people understand um, what they're what they're working with and, and who's, you know, what the what the issues are that are are kind of unfolding in front of them, the less likely it is for us to have tragedy. And so it's really about just education, education, education and reform. Right, getting and and reform in a good way. Getting getting people out there where they're trained and they have the ability to manage situations that can be potentially scary and and eventually life threatening. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, and and I just harken. I just kind of focus back on what I recently went through with Rebecca, and um, how hard it was emotionally. Um, you know, to be able to and and at that moment, you know, you you it's two things, you know, I kind of mention it in the recording or of the show. I say, you know, it's like, you don't know what to do and who to call, but then you almost resent not having anyone to call, you know, like, you know, that can help. And of course, I mean, I called you and, and you were very helpful in helping me process and slow down and think through it. But then you're like, man, I just, you know, th there needs to be a whole community. Everyone needs to be involved. You know, but on the opposite side of it, like, if you were to have called the police, like I would have been combative. Right. Like they would have wanted me to get out of the car. They would have told me I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And in that moment, like, no, you know, kind of like F you, like I'm doing what I'm going to do and I'm a grown person. So 
I think the show is going to be, I think the show will be helpful too for those who suffer with mental illness to know that there are programs out there that train first responders to know that about you, right? That they know how to kind of talk you down and to help you through those big emotions. Yeah, for, for sure. And I think, you know, Sarah, it would be great to, to chime in too about some of the the work and, you know, that you had done previously and, and setting up programs for law enforcement. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> we, I was constantly getting asked by different departments, park rangers, um, you know, firefighters, all people up and down the county and honestly in through the state were, were asking to come and to attend the CIT training that I was conducting. And because people were desperate. They constantly were, you know, having interactions with folks that were in crisis and they didn't know how to deal with it and they wanted to help, but they didn't know how to help, right? And right. You know, and that's the big thing. Like they wanted the training. They they were desperate for the training. Um, and, you know, it was on the flip side, it was trying to also find clinicians that could come in because, you know, the clinicians are the experts, right? They do the day-to-day -day grind of working with folks that have mental health concerns. And they were coming, we were, uh, part of my job was going and recruiting clinicians like Joelle, right? To come in and to facilitate a collaborative learning environment and for hopefully the officers to gain some skills along the way. And, you know, the joke was, so, you know, when I came on board, it was generally CIT should, is considered a voluntary program. So people that are interested in the program go and, you know, and, and attend the training. And when I came on board, I was told that, no, we want to mandate it, which is good and bad right? Everyone going through the program, it, it's good because then you have more people on the street or they're going to calls that, are, that have learned these skills, right? But whether or not some people apply those skills or not is, is the question, right? And you always want buy-in. Like with anything else, you want buy-in. Um, and so the big takeaway often at the end of the 40 hours was that they'd come up to me and they're like, that was really good. Thanks, Sarah. Right. And right. that's like the biggest compliment that you can get from law enforcement or that wasn't so bad. That was really kind of good. I really liked that. I liked, I liked Joe and I liked all of her jokes. Right. Um, but then they, I often would always also have officers come up to me, pull me off to the side and say, my brother, he has bipolar or my sister, she has been in and out of hospitals um, with schizophrenia her entire life. And, you know, this is, that's one of the reasons why I became a police officer, right? Because of the constant interactions that I had with law enforcement or whatever it was, right? They would tell a personal story. And so it touches everyone. I think that that's the other piece of this. And um, police, police departments are responding um, slow, but they're responding. And... It was rare that I got, this is, you know, this is BS. This doesn't work. Um, we don't need to do this. I, I, honestly, I never got that. I never got that in my four years. You know what I like about having these intentional conversations? I think there is a lot of myths and a lot of like anxiety going into something when you don't know what it is. And um, I was just having this conversation with a buddy of mine when it comes to like diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations where, you know, I kind of, my philosophy is diversity through shared purpose. Like that's kind of like my overall philosophy about how to approach diversity. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, how do we 
how do and and having partners um allies and I don't want to get off into that, but the point of the the point of it was is that when a person takes a moment to really understand what's going on, and they and they dispel the myth by having that lived experience of understanding mm-hmm. these strategies are there, then you begin to understand that oh, like you said, um, Sarah, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, this is really helpful. And then oh, how can I use this for my own family members? You know, you you oh. know, but a lot of it is all of this. I don't know this noise that's in out in the ecosystem that really does not really capture the way people I think authentically feel. There's kind of emotional reactions to it, right? I, yeah, because it's it, because it's so polarized, right? And and one of the things I loved about this conversation was it wasn't polarized at all. It you know, and and Sergeant Matthews has has a very impressive program and um, they're definitely cutting edge in the country on on what they're doing and and how they're working with people with mental health and mental illness needs um you know and and it was you know the group of us coming together and having a conversation about empathy right and and it felt like that like this is what we need, right? Where where a group of people can sit down and say, okay, how do we how do we handle these kinds of situations in a way that's safe for all people involved? Um, mm-hmm. That you know isn't about privilege or politics or polarization, you know, and and that's what I loved about this conversation. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and and it really felt like it got to the meat. It felt like we got somewhere. You know, I, f- I felt like we were moving the needle. Like in some way, I'm hoping that when when this goes out and everyone shares it, that other law enforcement communities will see it and say, "Hmm, let's give it a shot. At least let, let's talk to them. Let's call let's call Joe and Sarah and find out like more about this. Like that's kind of the goal. And even community stakeholders. Let's how can we pull everyone in a room and have this kind of like very calm and very authentic and 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 original conversation. With, without blame, right? Because right. that, that, that's that's the whole key is that nobody, you know, we're not blaming anyone here. We're we're just looking for solutions, and we're looking for, you know, people based solutions. Right. right. I mean, a little compassion goes a long way, right? And that's one of the things that I would kind of facilitate to the officers often was that, look, like taking that extra five minutes to talk to that person or to dial that number to NAMI right, while someone is struggling can go a long way. Because I'm telling you right now, they're going to remember, every person remembers how they're treated by someone else, right? And if you can take those five minutes and, and call NAMI, the hot, you know, you know, the local NAMI or whatever, or whatever it is that they're needing, and facilitate that, they're going to remember that. And they're going to say the next time that they have an interaction, um, oh, you know, that that officer Matthews, he did a great job, you know, helping me do this, this, and this, right? And it's, you're helping out your fellow officer, you're helping out your fellow community, you know, advocate, or whomever that has interactions with that person. Right, right, absolutely. Honey? Oh, no, you- I agree. <laughs> Be quiet. I am, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm letting, I'm letting the experts speak. Well, I'm nobody's expert, I'm just <laughs> dealing with lived experience. <laughs> That's true. I have the lived experience. <laughs> right. No, I mean, 
part of it is I missed half the show because I had to go to a doctor's appointment too. So I got the beginning and I got the end. That's true. That's that. You know what? That is, you know what? That is true. Yeah. So now we'll just, we'll just talk about Rebecca. Like she's the patient. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, Oh, oh, and thanks for sharing the, uh, the The hotline. The hotline. You are welcome. For NAMI. Well, let's see. Um, how many minutes are we into? The, oh, we're, 20. We're 20 minutes. We, we, um, we should lead into the show. All right. So um, I have it all queued up. We will do the transition. Everyone, um, uh, you know, you know, Joe, Sarah, thank you so much for guiding that conversation. We're going to play the, uh, the interview in its entirety right now. Um, and and uh, on the other side, um, we'll do an outro and... And we'll probably do a wrap-up show uh, after this. So I hope, hopefully, Joe, Sarah, you guys can come back and we can kind of talk about the show once it's been heard. That would be good. Yeah, that'd be really good. Okay. All right. So we will do the transition. Bipolar Productions presents Bipolar Girl of the Week. Just walk into a pool. Uh, no, I just hit record to hit some of the banter. Just I, I like this kind of fun conversation <laughs> as well. I, was like, I got a warning message. What is that? Oh, uh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm hitting what record now. Um, I was just looking to see like what the level of humidity is. Oh, 55. Oh, feels like 91. So it's 87. It's 55% humidity and feels like 91. Like, no, thank you. No, no, thank you. I, yeah. I, it's not too bad just yet. It'll be pretty wild later. I almost need, you don't like, have a- to wear your vest right now. <laughs> That's- oh, yeah. It's, well, it's right here. I luckily, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I hope this is the extent of the rest of my day. So, but we'll see. That's yeah. cool. That's really cool. Well, all right. So um, the way that I think this is going to work is that we're just going to, we will record, we'll have everyone introduce themselves, and then we'll cut it up and we'll lay it and we'll do an intro later. But right now we'll just, um, we'll just get into the conversation. And I think um, it would be great if, um, uh, well, Rebecca's going to have to jump off just a little bit um, and she'll come back. But uh, um uh, you know, it looks like it'll be us three um, asking Sergeant Matthews um, the questions. And um, in terms of the, the scope of the topic, it's a very good question. I mean, in terms of the questioning, um, uh, Joelle, I'll let you or Sarah lead off. It's okay. And then, you know, I'll just do what I do and ask some questions, follow up questions. Um, uh, but we'll stick to the parameters that we agreed to. Got it. Okay. Get- All right. So, Sergeant, are you comfortable talking about, you know, um, I, you know, your program is cutting edge, like it's got, you know, a lot of notoriety in the in the country for for doing what it's doing. And so is that OK with POA to talk about that in those terms? Sure. Yeah. OK, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, that's totally fine. OK. All right, so let's see. Um, we won't do a lead in here, but uh, Sergeant Matthews, why don't you start us off uh, uh, with your introduction and who you represent and what your team does? Okay. Well, uh, officially, I'm Sergeant Chad Matthews. I am the supervisor for the Crisis Response Support Section for the Montgomery County Police Department in Montgomery County, Maryland, suburb of DC. 
So um, what our unit specifically does is provide training and outreach opportunities um, for behavioral health, mental health, uh, people in cr uh, crisis. Um, and we also have a subsection of our team that does autism, IDD, um, al Alzheimer's and dementia outreach as well. Um, so primarily our function with, with my team is, like I said, the training of officers um, through our department, uh, for our department and for allied agencies. We get asked from like, uh, we have like, you know, park police, which is where I'm sitting in the park right now, park police, our city um, agencies, Rockville City, Gaithersburg City, Tacoma Park, um, federal agencies will jump on, um, fire department personnel will jump on, and then the clinicians that we work hand in hand with as well attend our trainings. Um, and that training is the crisis intervention training, which is the model from Tennessee started some 20 something years ago. Um, and then we also respond out as kind of um, subject matter experts for officers when they're dealing with more acute cases, uh, people going through um, multiple things and there's a lot of failures um, on a lot of different levels for different um, entities and we're kind of the last resort to, and we step in and should try to provide uh, a good solution for the person that's in crisis and then find a good resolution for everybody involved. So um, that's, that's pretty much what we do. And then, we're, we're, you know, like I said, um, as you alluded to, Stephen, what we're doing now is we're kind of getting into more of um, a co-responder model, which the, the CIT model is traditionally a co-responder model with licensed clinicians that we deal with. Um, we have an embedded clinician that works on our team, but um, we are also working with fire, the fire department and trying to get with them, which is sort of the cahoots model where you have an officer, a fire department personnel uh, person and uh, a clinician all in one vehicle going out and handling um, problems trying to be more proactive with those with those solutions instead of just reactive so we're gearing up for that um that's all dependent upon funding and political ideologies for the county at large right where do we want our police to focus what do we want them to do um because crime is through the roof like it is across america right so they focus on that as well so i'm trying to push us out of the corner where we've been for a while and really push us up to the forefront. So that's really what I'm trying to do with my team right now is just keep throwing us out there as much as possible. But that's, that's where we're trying to go. No, that's great. And then Joel um, uh, and Sarah, how about you guys introduce yourself to the audience? And, 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 and as we said in the beginning, you feel free to ask, uh, ask Sergeant Matthews any, uh, any questions. Got it. I'll I'll let Sarah go first, and then Stephen. We can talk if you're you know you're, you're doing an edit. I know. So um, um, when this goes live, if you want me to co-host the live, right? Then I can do you know I can introduce myself at that point too. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I'll let Sarah. Um, my name is Sarah Lucia. Um, you know, my background is in domestic violence and sexual assault, and I was also. I transitioned and I was the CIT manager for a for the 10th largest uh, police department in the nation. And um, just like Sergeant Matthews, I was tasked with putting officers through training. Um, 
and close to around 600 officers went through that training. And then I transitioned out of that after a number of years, and I'm now the clinical director for Joe. Excellent. Honey, um, oh, well, well, we're not doing introductions, that's right. So do we, so one of the initial questions that I think um, it's pressing on everyone's mind, especially, of course, with Rebecca having bipolar and recently going through a very tough time. And we did talk about it ahead of time. She could talk about it. Um, she gave me permission to kind of mention it. But she wanted to know what can the community expect when there's a mental health crisis and when calling your team and or calling 911? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so that, I mean, that, that's a good question. So Typically, the calls are going to go straight to 911. Our call, our team doesn't get called out specifically um, because there's only a few of us, um, to be honest, and we're more of a follow-up kind of team the way we're structured right now. Okay. Um, but when the 911 call goes out, um, the officers are trained through the CIT model and through the, the training that we've been providing more recently is to look for the big picture, try to figure out what is really going on with the situation. You might be called to a nine, um, a domestic violence situation because it's a townhouse community or a condo and they hear a man and a woman screaming and yelling and there's banging and they say, oh, and the call comes in or there's a woman being thrown around upstairs. Um, so the officers, middle of the night, they're charging in, they're gonna go save this woman, right? And you figure out it's just somebody going through a crisis um, and, um, and then the two parties are just trying to work out that crisis. So it's not really a domestic violence. No one's trying to injure each other. It's just somebody's going through some, some bad times. So the officers are, are trained to kind of look for that kind of stuff and say, well, hey, uh, okay, so I'm clearly not making an arrest here. There's no one that's breaking the law and you know, trying to maliciously hurt somebody. So what else is really going on here? Because inevitably, if we don't solve the problem, we're going to be back later and potentially somebody could get hurt worse. So, um, well then they'll, the officers are trained to call our crisis center and talk to our licensed clinicians and they operate out of our, our crisis center, which is in Rockville. It's a 24 seven operation where we have a staffed um, team of clinicians that will field calls and handle anything that the officers are really not seeing like um, to provide kind of more of that expert um, uh, knowledge to the officers. And then, you know, if it's uh, something that keeps continuing, um, then eventually our team would get called out where we could then provide some kind of solution with different resources or just take an extra hard look at it. But initially when that call comes in, yeah, it's going to be the first responders and they're going to do what they need to do for safety first. And then they're going to look for different avenues to solve the problem. Um, so that's typically what you get with the CIT train officer, which in our department, it's been mandated. Um, the county council voted uh, about two years ago that every officer in Montgomery County has to be, has to attend CIT training. It used to be a voluntary um, program. Um, so I also have feelings on that as well, because anytime you make everything mandatory, right, it becomes something that, well, now we all have to do it. So um, that's something I'm, I'm trying to push with. But the good news is, though, that everybody is going through the training um, and, Right now, we have about 80% or more of our officers have been through the training. So um, it's, it's pretty good. I think we've definitely, like you said, um, we've definitely been one of the first people to adopt the CIT model and push it forward. So I feel, feel pretty good about that. I'm, I've kind of entered in a role that's already been well-established. 
That's cool. Joe? Yeah, that that's that's really exciting. Thanks for sharing. I, I know um, you know, part of my role was coming in and, and doing you know, mental health training for whether they were, you know, new recruits coming into the academy or um, veteran officers, new, you know, newly promoted supervisors, um, and, and then being able to provide sort of the beginning stages of the mental health information, I think, you know, Sergeant, that you're talking about. Um, but Sarah was really instrumental in, in getting those programs going and bringing in different kinds of resources. So Sarah, okay. like, what, what did you do as well to get the officers prepared to train to be trained to see and work with things that you know were homelessness schizophrenic and and bipolar so you know a couple of things one i think it's there needs to be real collaboration with trying to find the right clinicians to come in and teach to officers i think that's really really important right um and it's finding that it's about finding the right fit, right? Um, the other piece is making it a little bit palatable. So, you know, when I would meet with clinicians and I would say like, okay, I would love you to come in and teach an hour on, you know, bipolar disorder, right? They would always ask like, what do, what do the officers actually need? Um, and what don't they need, right? Because you have, a short, you have a short amount of time and you wanna get, you know, the most bang for your buck, so to speak. And, I would always say, give us the symptoms and give us, you know, tips and techniques as a clinician that you, as you've been working with folks with this um, disorder, how can they, how can you help calm them down in a, in a, in a crisis situation? Because collective, you know, action and collective, you know, um, ideas are always really beneficial. And so that was one thing that I would always try to help frame the presentation. So that way, the officers got exactly, hopefully what they needed. And the clinicians felt like they were also being able to give some tips and techniques that were helpful for them. Yeah, and I think, and really working with the, the you know, we, we talk a lot on this show about, you know, stories over stigma, right? Mm -hmm. and, and really kind of working with officers in when you're acquiring information, how do you do that in a way that's, gets the information that the officer needs again like you know the officer chad was saying you know we're safety first right so once that's established how do you get the information needed to give somebody the care resources or even if they need an escort into the hospital um, in a way that's safe for the officer it's safe for the person in need and gets then the care that they need right and so um trying to figure out how to train officers to have the right language and and the the right approach so they were they were also the officer was safe but also the person in need was safe too yeah i agree you both had a lot of really interesting points that recognizing the symptoms of what's going on with someone and asking the right questions um because again, you know, as a, as a first responder, especially with the police department, where we're taught to go in and you're supposed to own that room, you're supposed to own that situation. Everything is broken bad. You're the last resort. You need to control and maintain order, right? To this chaotic situation, you are the last person you have to, this is your job, figure everything out. Well, if you can start asking the right questions, well, why are you fidgeting 
and, and not listening to me? Why can't you look at me when I'm asking you questions? Um, whatever the symptoms are, whatever the person's going through. Oh, you know, I learned in CIT school that this is a sign of schizophrenia, right? They're, they're li listening to me, but they're also listening to other things. So, right. okay, cool. All right. So I know that they're not just being um, uncooperative, right? Or they're combative with me. They're just, they're just trying to go through to make themselves, you know, feel safe because now you've entered the situation. So a lot of good points there. I really, I really think you guys said on a lot of good things. Yeah. The one thing that I would always um, tell officers too, that, you know, one person, if you can have one person talking, right? One voice, yep. One voice is so, so helpful, especially, if, you know, if someone, you know, someone, this is, they're in a crisis, um, they are scared, right? Um, whether they've had good interactions or not great interactions, police can be intimidating, you know, like it's, it can be really, really scary, and so if you can create a little bit of calmness by one person talking at a time, um, and some situations can, can, can do that and, and others can't, right? But if you can, and it's safe to do so, one voice, it, it, it's, it's the little things sometimes. And I think that that was um, the one tip that I would have officers continuously come back and tell me that that really did work. Like one person you know, was the lead and everyone else kind of just stood back and listened, right? So. And remembering that people are human, you know, Absolutely. so as again, it, as long as, you know, the officers or first responders have gone through their checklist, they've assessed that this is a safe situation, you know, that the, the person that they're in front of who, who is in crisis, right, is also human. And, and that empathy, you know, doesn't make the officer appear weak. It, it becomes an, an, a necessary and important component, right? Of developing empathy and, and hey, I'm, I'm here to help and I'm, I'm paying attention and, and I see that you're struggling and what are things that I, I can do? And so really kind of using that I statement, reflective language, you know, I'm here to help. Um, again, you know, I, I'm, I'm making the assumption that, that the officer has secured the situation and it is a safe, you know, environment for them, but, um, you know, so some of it was just training officers on, hey, you know, here, here's a couple of like how to be a good clinician skills, you know, what, you know, just to have these conversations when they were out on calls. Right. And oh, I think you, oh, go ahead, Sarah. I'm sorry. No, um, I just was saying, too, that, you know, I would open it with that one in every five, right? People are struggling with a, you know, a mental health concern, right? That's, I mean, data from NAMI, right? And so that always kind of like made a few eyes kind of go big, right? Because it could easily be your friend, your peer, your brother, your sister, your family member, right? That is having this mental health concern and is calling 911 because they need help or, you know, for whatever reason, how would you want that person? How would you want your, your family member or friend or whomever, right? That you know to be treated. Um, and it brought it home for, for many officers in that respect, right? Um, uh, Sergeant Chad, uh, Ch Sergeant Chad, what do you think about that? Yeah, and Chad's fine, by the way. <laughs> I'm totally. We're trying. We are trained to. Uh... We are. Yeah, we're pretty well. Our, we're pretty relaxed, and I'm definitely super relaxed. <laughs> and this is what I wear to work today. You know, I'm like, hey, whatever. <laughs> I'm doing me. You know, but um, yeah, no, um, just putting the person first, right? So we call like check, we, we've been kind of working on this thing the last few years of like checking your emotions at the door. When you enter 
that 10th call for the night, you might have just broken up a fight or you might have just handled a really bad car accident, stressful this and you and your wife's calling you like, hey, our kid is sick or, you, you know, we need to do this. You need to be home at a certain time. And then you're like, well, I'm being held over for overtime, whatever the situation is. Now you're going to this problem. Check all that at the door and say, hey, what are you, what are you going through right now and how can I help you? Um, I want to help you with your problem because, you know, you can't carry your weight into that. So into that, um, to that house um, or whatever situation. So that's really something that's, that's kind of really been important, I think. And it's calmed a lot of officers down to slow everything down start asking the questions and say, I'm here. How can I help you? What's going to be the best resource and not being afraid to ask. I think, um, Joelle, you were saying that, you know, um, ask the right questions and then, you, you know, typically, like when I started about 20 years ago, it was kind of we're supposed to go in there. We're supposed to know everything. We're supposed to take charge. Right. Um, now it's like, hey, I don't know. I don't know what this person's going through. I don't really know what's going on. You know, this person's over here, like kind of wants to talk to us. Typically, we would say, stay away. We're handling whatever we're doing right now. Hey, OK. Hey, or it's safe right here. I'm going to go talk to this person. Well, hey, I'm a neighbor. I know they're diagnosed with um, bipolar. Um, blah, blah, blah. They have an aunt that lives down the street, right? So these are things that kind of like we're doing now more. And, and it's kind of really fun to see, I think, um, that officers are really thinking outside the box. Well, and it's not really even outside the box thinking, but yeah. it's not traditional thinking for the police world. You know what I mean? Yeah. That makes totally. sense. As my former sergeant used to say, she says, if you have five, take five, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So when, when your officers are out on a particular call, what has to be reported or not? Because that's one reason, I mean, you know, I, I remember early on um, in Rebecca's diagnosis that, you know, we, we had a, uh, a, a psychiatrist who said he had a lot of high profile uh, Capitol Hill spouses. And one in particular was walking naked down Pennsylvania Avenue. And, but like, but like the biggest concern was keeping it out of the media and keeping it all, you know, out of, you know, official records. What, you know, what is allowable, allowable and what do you, what are you required to do when you're out on the call, especially when you're dealing with like, what I would say VIP families, not that anyone is more important than the other, you know, but you know. No, yeah. I mean, here in Montgomery County, I mean, you know, we have the three, we have three Supreme Court justices, right? So that's been a big drain in our resources because we've, protesters have been showing up. So we've had a significant amount of people that are dedicated to um, maintain those properties, right? So yeah, we, we have a whole lot of that going on here in Montgomery County, right? Um, so we're definitely familiar. But as far as like reporting, I mean, it, we're all about transparency, right? So we have a body camera, um, even people in my unit, right? So when we go out anything, on anything, um, our county states that anytime we identify as the police, uh, as police, we have to fully represent our name, have our ID number. It's got to be clearly visible. Um, and that body camera is always rolling at all times. So that's discoverable at all time for MPIA requests. Um, police reports are always discoverable. Um, you can redact a few things. Um, especially when you get into like, we call them emergency evaluation petitions here when we take someone to the hospital uh, to petition them. Um, but those are, it's all public record, unfortunately, um, good or bad, you know? Um, so we don't really have the choice to not report certain things. Right. 
Right. That's a good question. That's a very good feedback. I mean, cause I know in the community, you're always worried about, you know, especially when, you know, things can go really hot in the media and it turns South really quickly. Um, and, 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 and we, quite frankly, we live in the DC, the DMV. So politically speaking, you know, anyone will use anything politically to, to tear down their opponent. And, um, but yet life happens and it's like, well, how do we balance, you know, everybody's job, everyone, has a job to do and also protect the privacy of, uh, of, of the patient. You know, that's, it's, it's, it's complicated. It is yeah. difficult. Yeah. Especially when somebody's not at their best, right? I mean, the right. person's in a crisis and, you know, they want to stop taking their medication because it makes them feel off, right? They don't want to take it anymore and they feel better. And then all of a sudden, you know, then they're not better. It's right. Just like that. And then, now they're yeah doing something in the middle of the street or whatever it is and then now we're here and then there's police cars and um, right. yeah right yeah and 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 from you know from a clinical side you know um every state is different as far as what they can report um from from the clinical side you know um not not necessarily the law enforcement side but you know we we can't report um in california we can't report things like domestic violence we can't report if somebody's not taking their medication um you know we can report a danger to a self or self or others we can report you know child protective services adult protective services elderly protective services but really beyond that um so when we're you know advocating for um trained officers to come in and help us send somebody to the hospital um that's usually done confidentiality but again that's sort of that that's a different side of of what chad is talking about too Mm -hmm. um so so therapists have therapists psychologists social workers psychiatrists we have a different kind of reporting mechanism and we have the ability to keep more confidential and and a lot of times you know sarah and i are spending time with clients saying you know look we need you to go to the hospital and whether you know we need we need to go with you we need to send a team with you we'll we'll have a family member take you that confidentiality becomes um more encased with you know hey i i need extra help and extra services um and so, you know, when, when law enforcement is involved, they have a different protocol. And so important to know to what, you know, if you're listening to the show and you're experiencing this, what, what your own state guidelines are, whether you're a clinician or, or a police officer, first responder or patient, you know. Very yeah, true. Yeah, and, and I know I'm sure you all with, with your police departments in California, but like, so my team, you know, this is like our, our dress uniform you know it, we're going in and we have unmarked vehicles um some look less police-ish than others but um we go in and when we deal with our more acute cases um or or cases where clinicians have called and said hey look i'm a little concerned you know the person may have a little bit of violence in their past would you go with us so we're going to go out and no one is really going to know that the police are there which is kind of nice we call it like the softer uniform approach um that, that goes a long way for um, a lot of people um, instead of having that marked car parked in front of the house. Um, so uh, something that I'm trying to push forward too is transport vehicles because that's something that's a big hang up for a lot of people from the clinician side, with the hospitals, 
um, and just perception. Um, but we don't have the policies in place. We don't have the vehicles or the funding for it right now. I really would like to get some kind of van, some kind of transport vehicle where we can put someone in there that they're going to be safe in that in, in that transport period, you know, from from whatever situation to the hospital or, or clinic or the ecologist's office or wherever they want to get treatment. Um, so that's something that's, I think, down the road. And I think that's going to be really beneficial um, for us. Yeah. I would, oh, sorry. Go ahead, boss. Oh, no, I was going to actually defer to you and say, hey, you know, Sarah, you could probably um, address more of the, you know, different law enforcement agencies, you know, you've dealt with with them all in California and, and sort of what their protocols are. So this, this doctor uniform, absolutely. A lot of departments that, you know, do have CIT programs or that I've, you know, collaborated with, they were, they, you know, they're adopting that. So they're wearing polos, right? But their badges on there, but it's a softer look and it, it helps, right? Um, especially when someone is, you know, dealing with this mental health crisis. Um, I know at the department that I was at, um, they were starting to implement um, trying to use more unmarked cars again um, as, as a way to try to keep the situation calm, right? Um, oftentimes we would have different people front. We would have a part of the presentation where NAMI would come in and they'd bring in people that are to talk about their own experience. And the idea behind that was that it would be stigma reducing, right? So I have this mental health, you know, um, you know, disorder that I've been diagnosed with, and I'm here to tell you my story. And it's, um, and they would often talk about, you know, the things that, that they, the things that officers did really well at. And that was, you know, when one person was talking, when um, just explaining what was going to happen next, right, mm -hmm. was also really, really helpful. I'm going to put, I, unfortunately, I have to put handcuffs on you. You're not in trouble. I'm going to transport you to the hospital, um, but I want you to know that's why I'm doing this. It's policy, it's protocol. Unfortunately, that's that's part of my job. But you're not, in, you know, this is you're not going to, you know, I'm taking you to the hospital. I'm not taking you to jail. You're not in trouble, right? I'm going to put you in the car now, right? Um, and I'm going to be back in a few minutes. I'm going to finish up this report, and then I'm going to take you, and we're going to talk on the way to the hospital. That like transitioning and helping someone realize what's what's happening next was always something that. Um, I found when officers were able to do that and they had the time to do that, it was really helpful. And that's what, and that's helped create a little more calmness to the situation, but definitely the softer look, the uniform, um, unmarked police cars versus, you know, big police car, that kind of thing was a lot of departments were implementing. Yeah. That, that explaining is, is very big too, because again, I refer back to when I started to write, it was just kind of like, we're doing this. I don't need to tell you why I'm doing it. I'm here to do a job and this is going to happen. Right. So now it's, Hey, this is why we're doing it. And of course, when it's safe to do so, right. So sometimes it's a, it's a large chaotic scene where you just, you have to kind of push things through, but you really, the explaining part goes such a long way. And, and, and honestly, like as a supervisor, um, complaints against officers, the complaints that I would get, um, even on myself, when people complain on me, it was, I wasn't explained. I didn't know what was going on. I felt very powerless. I didn't have a say in the situation, but you, if, but so when we are able to talk kind of through things with people and explain, Hey, this is why I'm doing it. I'm here to help you. 
I'm not trying to like harm you. Um, that goes a long way. And people, the, the, the amount of complaints or dissatisfaction with our job, with our work goes down dramatically. Um, some people at the end of the day just are never happy with anything, but you know, that's right. another story. And then, and then your point about the self-advocates, we're huge on that here. Um, like I said, NAMI, we have great presenter, Josh. He uses therapy for himself because he had uh, run-ins with us <laughs> before a few times. And he loves to come out and say it. He gets very anxious before, the days before. Um, but he looks forward to it because he stands in front of a room of cops and he gets to tell everybody like what he thinks and, and what goes through his mind when he sees one of us, even if it's just driving down the road, right? Um, and he talks about his experience about, hey, when I was younger and I was self-medicating or I was doing this or um, however I wanted to treat my, my situation at the time, um, I would see an officer. And if I was going to get pulled over, a million things would go through my mind and I would choose like, I'm not going to pull over. I'm going to do this. Um, so he would have a lot of these different thoughts and he, him telling the, the room what was going on was really powerful to the officers to see kind of what was going through his mind. And then we use that also as part of our training. So after Josh gets done and presents, um, we talk about explaining um, to different people that we do outreach um, with. We go, hey, if you do see an officer and you are driving the car and you get pulled over, this is what's going to happen. The officer is going to, you know, ask you to stop. He's going to ask you for your driver's license registration. He's going to then walk back to the car. You kind of walk people through it so they have an idea um, what's going on so they're not all um, feeling alarmist about the whole situation. I think that's really beneficial. And our officer, Lori Reyes, does a great job with that. Um, she could not be here today, but um, she does that with her autism and IDD community. Um, they actually do fake, um, like, pretend traffic stops. They'll actually go out and have the people drive around a parking lot and pull them over. And people get very anxious, even though it's just a practice scenario, right? But um, having somebody walk through it and say, okay, you're just getting stopped because you may have run through that stoplight or you might have a brake light out. Um, this is what the officer is going to do. Um, so this is normal. So you know what to expect. And I think that goes a long way. Knowing what to expect takes a lot of the question out of it. You know, that's an interesting point, too, because, you know, even when we're not talking about chronic mental illness, this is sort of a that's a great sort of community policing sort of strategy. Just, you know, so that young people and anyone who's early driving or anyone new to the country really understand sort of like the way the process works. So it doesn't become this adversarial oppositional type environment where it's like this this lady or this gent is an officer and they are conducting themselves in a way that I understand now. Like I know the process, so I'm prepared for it. Um, and um, I'm not, you know, going to like ask, well, do you know who I am? You know, one of those kind of moments. And, you know, I'm really going to take this seriously and get through it because then at the end of the day, you know, it's always like, ah, you laugh with the officer at the end, you're like, hey, pay your ticket or, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, and you have a good time. So, you know, as long as you remain respectful and um, I've, and that's based on at least my experiences with uh, traffic stops. In fact, one was I was on my way to youth group as a child and he was like, why are you going so fast? I was going through like park, please. I was like, and I was, I was like, 
I'm sorry, I'm trying to go to my youth group. And I had like my music on and everything. He was just like, all right, this is a warning. I don't ever want to see you do this again, but have a good day. And, uh, but you know, and you know, it was just, you know, then there was another time, you know, where, you know, the, the, the captain called my mom. <laughs> uh, I was going through the time we lived in Rock Creek Park and I was driving and then I was just like, why are you harassing me? And he wasn't harassing me. I was just, it was hot and I was having a bad day. And, um, and he was just like, I'm not trying to harass you. So whatever, we got through it. And then he called my mom. So my mom, he and I had like a two hour conversation and my mom made me call him and apologize. Um, uh, and uh, and, um, and uh, so, yeah, so that's kind of the way that happened. But that's, that's such a good, I mean, it starts there too. You know, I know um, we all have children at different ages, um, you know, and uh, Sarah has a police family, you know, or that, that's what her spouse does. And so, you know, it, it starts, it starts young though, as far as having the conversations about, you know, this is what first responders do. This is what police officers do. You know, this is, this is how you talk to them, right? You know, and how you ask questions, and and there's so much that goes into into that. With, you know, like you said, you know, earlier, Chad, with political climate and just socioeconomics and and race, creed, culture, religion, we can na name them all. And and I I feel like for me, some of it is having the conversations with children at a young age so they aren't they they know what to expect right and um and and some of that's family dynamics so when we have families who have a history of having negative experiences with first responders and law enforcement right that's sort of being passed down generationally you know to children and then we're finding that children are growing up and they've never learned that skill right um right. Well, I don't, yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it, you know, it was definitely, uh, it was definitely an interesting experience, you know, being a kid. But other than that, like when I first lived in California the first time, I was in Newport Beach and I did an East Coast California roll. I did an East Coast roll, a roll through the stop sign in um, up on the peninsula, right? Officer pulls me over, right? I had, okay, it was bad. I had Massachusetts plates uh, and uh, in this little car, I pulled over. It was my buddy Jason was with me. And and then all of a sudden, like, he goes, you know why I stopped you? I was like, no, because this is like routine in Boston. I mean, like, everyone's just rolling through stop signs. And uh, so I had to learn at that point, like, you have to drive differently in different places. Uh, <laughs> and or it's probably a good idea just to stop, right? And then go through. <laughs> Don't be so impatient. So, yeah. So, anyway. Where do we want to go from here? Well, um, I wanted to comment on that the stop something. I thought we call it the West Coast. Right? Stop. Yeah, the West Coast. Y'all are much more relaxed on the West Coast. You just kind of roll. It's like a suggestion, you know? We'll just kind of go through, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, man, you got to stop, you know? <laughs> Behind the actual line, too, you know? Not even just like... <laughs> The church signal from the Bay Area, from the like Northern California to the Southern California. Good Lord, man. <laughs> that and I was going to say, you know, and then I come and, and I drive in, in your neck of the woods, Chad and Stevens and, and uh, 
the speed limit is 55 and like where Sarah and I are, Sarah and I are from like the Silicon Valley Bay area where, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, that that's the headquarters. Everybody's in a hurry and busy, busy, busy. And so then I get on the road and I'm going like 20 miles over the speed limit because like 70 is normal where we are. This That's what the speed limit is. And it's just, it's, it is really funny to, to have to adjust and, and had the experience of being pulled over and the officer coming up to me. And I still like, I, I, I do this for a living and I still get nervous. Right. And roll down my window. We go through the whole thing. Drivers numbers. And he looked at me, he goes here from California. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you know how fast you were going? And I said, you know, to be honest with you, I have no idea. And he laughed and he goes, do you have any idea what the speed limit is? And I said, no, sir. And he goes, start reading the signs. I was like, okay. No, that's it's true. Helpful reminders all over the road. Yeah, I know, right? There are signs everywhere, Joe. Like you know, look up and read the signs. I'm like, thank God I wasn't on my phone. I had both hands on the steering wheel, you know. But it was one of those moments where he's like, "Do you even know what the speed limit is?" I'm like, "No, no, I, no." Yeah, I was in Philadelphia last weekend, and none of those people know what speed limits are in general or road rules. <laughs> do what you need to do, right? <laughs> right, exactly. I found myself saying, "Hey, where is a cruiser?" When you <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I want to flag them down. <laughs> Just like, wow, like I feel like I'm gonna run over, like run off the road. They drive so crazy. <laughs> all right, I digress. Let's stay focused on mental health. <laughs> but it all, like, it all relates because what we're talking about is creating a, a, a not only a stronger ecosystem but just some more opening lines of communication because that is always helpful when you're dealing with someone who is you know mentally ill or when you're dealing with some if someone is normative as they say um you know it you know it, communication is key in what i'm hearing and then i'm hearing my good friends here in montgomery county maryland are just doing it well they're they're, they're setting the example for everyone in terms of how to engage on in these very critical matters i mean you remember like with rebecca i mean i was calling you joe i almost called you sergeant matthews like i, I mean i almost called I was like what do i do like how do i fix this you know and i was like i don't know what to do you know and you know she works for justice so i don't want to like create this bigger situation like for her and the government and uh yeah i mean so i mean these were really real life experiences i was having and thank god i had joe in my life and um and i was just like oh well, i don't know what to do or joe's like well try this call me back try that you know and um we got through it thank god she's better now but whew, it got sticky you know? Yeah. And and it's it's not it it's it is scary for the person in the moment because sometimes depending on what the me mental health you know what the illness is or diagnosis is what the medications are and then what what they're experiencing sometimes they don't have memory of what's happened and so now they're they're being told hey this thing happened or you did this thing and it's terrifying and then for officers not knowing you know is this going to get violent is this you know a normal part of of mental health presentation for this illness and so we're expecting our first responders and law enforcement in some ways to have a clinical understanding of all these different diagnoses when 
that's not their purview. And so it, it's difficult because on, on the flip side, it's trying to judge, is this person going to get violent? If they have bipolar, does that mean I have to worry about X, Y, and Z, right? And and, and there, it, it becomes, it can become really dangerous really quickly for everybody involved. Um, and part of it is I think we, we as society are expecting our first responders in some ways to be mental health clinicians, right? With, without having the training. And so to me, that's the interesting part is, is how do we narrow, how do we narrow the gap when, you know, we're dealing with somebody who is having a drug overdose and they may have very erratic and dangerous behavior could look very similar to somebody who's having a psychotic break because they didn't take their medication and that presentation looks similar. So how does an officer or first responder distinguish between the two, right? And that's my question sort of to, to both, you know, Chad and Sarah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is difficult because you, you are being asked a lot. And I keep referring back to, you know, when I started, right? The job of the police officer is changed, right? As society changes. Now we're being asked to, yeah, be street side clinicians in a lot of ways. So a lot of ways. So for us to kind of ask good questions quickly to quickly determine which route we're going to go. Okay. Yeah. Is this person being combative because they, you know, it, mean, they actually want to do whatever they're doing and they're actually like knowingly and intently causing harm or stealing or doing whatever else, or is this, yeah, are they in a psychotic break or, um, is this, you know, baseline normal for them? And hey, they're really not trying to do anything normal. They're just a very eccentric person because they exhibit these different symptoms. Um, and if that's the case, well, who is your provider? Um, are you in like a group home environment? You know, this kind of thing. So that's where like, the, you know, having a good beat cop knows where he knows everybody. You can kind of say, oh, this is so-and-so. He lives over there, you know, that kind of thing. But um yeah, it's kind of making those quick decisions is really tough because, again, you know, people are, you know, officers are human like everybody else. So sometimes you get it wrong. Um, but it's definitely challenging because, like I said, the, the role has changed dramatically over the last few years. But um, I feel like we've been kind of doing it with our department. But, you know, we could always do better and um, keep pushing forward as we learn more as well. Um, you know, officers, unfortunately, police departments across the nation have kind of become, I, I used to call it the kitchen sink, right? Um, because cuts across the board to behavioral health programs, to group homes, to all of these other safety net services, right? And I, I would ask the question, I would pose this to the group, like, do you guys know your local behavioral health phone number? And everyone would be like, oh, right? But what number do you know? You know 911, right? Um, and so that's who gets called, right? And the other piece that I'd always often say, um, and sometimes I'd get pushback, but I would kind of provide the data, is that folks that have mental illness are much more susceptible to um, becoming victims of crime as opposed to you know, um, committing the crime. Like that's what the data shows, right? Um, and so what I would use to say is that it's not necessarily that the situations are more violent, the situations are generally more unpredictable, which can absolutely give the impression of potential potentiality for more violence. Not to say that violence doesn't occur, because absolutely it does. 
Um, but it's unpredictable. And officers are now being tasked with, you know, as Chad said, that kind of doing it all. They have to be able to recognize the signs. They have to secure the scene. They have to do all this within a five minute window. They have to, you know, incorporate community policing. They have to do all these different things. That's a lot for one call. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's why, you know, in the beginning, and I, when I was talking to Chad, and I had said, you know, I had this great idea, which I thought was a great idea, but what are the blind spots? And, um, and it was about like, well, how do we have, well, I said, how do we deputize? Meant, um, you know, social workers and, um, you know, clinicians to, to, to work alongside officers. And Chad, you had a great response to that, which I didn't think about, of course, because I'm not, you know, I'm not out there dealing with the public like that. Um, um, and you share, care to share your response um, in terms of, like, the, I guess, the delivery issues with having, you know, deputizing clinicians? Oh, well, I'm not. To be honest, I'm not sure what I said. <laughs> well, you had mentioned that you had said you said um, you said well you said um, we want you know people in the mental health field to think like people in the mental health field and not to think like officers and officers to think like officers but to have an understanding of the environment. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's the dynamic that we have. So we have, like I said, we have a um, embedded clinician, um, HHS employee. Um, they're therapists too. So they go out with us uh, and they see things through their clinical perspective, right? And, they, and they're aware because they work with us. Um, so they kind of know like the police, what we do and kind of what we're concerned about. That's kind of going on in this little part of their brain, but then they're, they're focused on what am I seeing? What am I, you know, they're going through their evaluations and then, and then they're providing that to us. Hey, look, I need to talk to you. This is what I'm seeing, or or a lot of the time it happened to, to be yesterday. We, you know, um, one of our one of our um, more senior clinicians. Um, we were dealing with um, a chronic nine one abuser. Somebody just calls a thousand times a day. Alcohol problem, right? They just they just want to talk to somebody, so they're calling several hundred times a month. You know, so it's just tying up the system. So um, I'm asking some questions. I'm going in, and then. There goes so-and-so just right in there and just pushed me out of the way. Hey, this is what, you know, this is what I'm seeing. And then starts asking questions. So essentially their, his perspective was way better than mine. And he was able to really problem solve a lot quicker than I could. I'm going through my kind of steps of what I'm seeing and trying to resolve the situation. Um, and having him there was, was, was amazing because he just jumped right in and was able to problem solve and, you know, it, it was a great solution. So, um, yeah, and they're, they're taking the lead on this individual case, but um, that, that was phenomenal. So having them there to see things through their perspective, through all their training um, is super, super beneficial. And that's hopefully we can get more and more clinicians out there um, with mm -hmm. the police um, to, to really kind of have that second set of eyes, you know, like I said, because sometimes things present kind of odd to us and we don't really know what we're seeing and having that perspective is great well i can tell you if i was elected to office i quadruple your budget <laughs> oh, do yes. everything you want to do <laughs> yeah a lot of asks yeah <laughs> right. i'm asking for a lot yeah we, well good we have the 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 issue of um in you know the insurance companies um and and resources don't pay clinicians enough and so clinicians are deterred from 
from really working with first responders and law enforcement because it's not paid well um, for, for, you know, for California, but primarily Silicon Valley, we see this a lot. So we have that issue. The other issue we have is that the clinicians that choose to work with law enforcement and first responders don't necessarily have the training and they're not, they don't have the trauma informed um, training that they need to provide good care um, to law enforcement. And so we kind of see this on, on more of this holistic problem where, um, you know, in order to get good care, we have to be willing to pay for it. But like, it, it's, it's such a socioeconomic problem. Um, and like, like Sarah was saying, you know, a lot of what we see are people who are having a break for whatever reason with their mental illness and a psychotic break or that there's a medication deregulation, um, something is happening. And so then even if we do have a clinician go out, they're trained to do, do the mental health piece, but they have no clue how to work with law enforcement. And so there's this huge disconnect. And I think that like, it sounds like you, Chad, have, have a pretty elegant solution on how you're handling it, where I know Sarah and I have, have that's part of what we've been working on and, and trying to achieve is, you know, have everybody trained, not, not just the officers, but the clinicians as well. So they're used to working with law enforcement and providing law enforcement with the, the care and support they need and also working with mental health clinicians um, to understand law enforcement and how they work with their their population, right? Um, and and homelessness and schizophrenia, drug drug use is really the big the biggies where um, officers don't have the training. Clin most clinicians don't have the training, and so how do, how do we kind of tackle this from a systemic? perspective, not just saying, okay, well, it's law enforcement to deal with, or, you know, it's political to deal with, or it's, or it's whatever. Um, Cause there's definitely some socioeconomic concerns on both sides of, of, of the equation here. Yeah. I've noticed and what, what I've been trying to do now that I'm in this role is get everyone out of their individual silos, because like you said, everybody kind of does, does their own thing. So we've been collaborating a lot with um, our hospital system because there's a huge breakdown on their end too. You know, there's no beds for people. Right. We have our people that definitely need care. They are way off their baseline and they need care, but they don't have the insurance. Um, the hospital's got no room for them. Um, you know, they don't want them in there, right? So there's the pushback and then we deal with them. I mean, there's literally like just screaming matches between like nurses and officers are like, you know, the officer's like, hey, I keep bringing this person in. They need help. Like, why are you not helping them? And they're like, well, why don't you just arrest them? Just put them in jail because, you know, and then, well, then there's that also as well. Sometimes that is the best avenue, unfortunately, at least right. here is they'll get mental health in the, in the jail, right? Um, so there's always, everybody's trying to help these individuals, but there's just such a breakdown across all levels. And that's something that, um, you know, I mean, I'm just, you know, middle management, right? You know, for the department, and we're just, I'm just trying to bring everybody together, and um, we've we've been having a lot of success with it because we're having these conversations with the different folks, and we're trying to come up with better solutions. So, bringing everybody to calls with us is something that I've been trying to do, which has been great. Like, you know, that hoarder situation where they have pets. So let's bring animal services with us. Let's bring code enforcement with us. Let's bring, you know, 
the police department. Let's bring the fire department person because the person is going to need to be transported. They're going to need to have their vitals checked. Let's bring everybody to the party and kind of do it all at once. So we're, we're reducing the amount of contact where we're going out three, four different times, you know, um, and then we're kind of coming up with that holistic solution for the person and the community, wherever it is. Cause if it's a house where, you know, that that's the one house on the street, right. Where everybody's having a problem with having that holistic approach kind of solves that problem. And then you're getting everybody's input with the neighborhood. But um, yeah, like you said, do all it's, it's a, it's a big problem with the, a lot of breakdowns. I was going to say, it's okay. The whole community probably knows anyway. The whole block knows who the problem house is. They'll all tell you. I saw them yesterday, officer. Like, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. I'm sure you know so-and-so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. I was sitting here thinking when you said middle management, I was like, you know, I thought I saw a movie about a guy who was an international spy who was in middle management, too. <laughs> Those are very important people, middle management. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but um, no, this has been a great conversation and we're coming up on our hour and we don't want to belabor the point um, today or hold you up rather because we really want you back. I feel like this conversation is just beginning yeah. and I feel like there's more to cover. We're just scratching the surface, but this is what this is about is like really creating spaces for intentional, intelligent conversations about how the community can help you know, engage individuals or how the community and law enforcement engage individuals with mental illness. And so I've learned a lot. Of course, Joelle, I love the fact that you're, you know, um, you know, um, hosting with us and Sarah, thank you so much. And Chad, awesome. Thank you so much. And, um, and, and, you know, and, and uh, I know that, you know, on this show, we've heard less from Rebecca during the interview. Um, but, um, you know, as we all know, there's just been a lot going on, um, you know, over the last, what, six, three months, I think. Um, three months, yeah. <laughs> so it's been an absolute lot going on. But uh, thank you. We're trying to create community and, and tell stories and stories over stigma. And, uh, and thank you, Chad. Do you want to say anything? Um, you know, the listeners all over the world. Oh, um, I really appreciate you guys actually doing this. This is, this is great. You're, you're, you know, you're inviting me, law enforcement, right, to kind of speak on our perspective, and that's, that's often not done, right? There's always assumptions about what's going through our mind, but if I could say anything is that, you know, well, at least for our department, we're, we're doing our best to kind of solve these issues um, that we're coming across. Um, so we're doing our best, and we'll, we'll keep learning. We're, we're still trying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Rebecca, before we um, have Sarah and jo Joelle to uh, 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 say their final remarks, do you want, have anything you want to say today? Um, I agree. I think it's important to know that you are doing your best because I think in the mental health community, you know, the police are seen kind of as the boogeyman or the bad guy. And it's the very last least option that you want is someone to call the police on you when you're in a crisis, right? Because you just fear that it's just going to go poorly. Um, so it's nice to hear from your side about how you're trying to make it not that anymore. Yeah, tearing down that stigma. Yeah, thanks, hon. Uh, Sarah, or yeah, Sarah, then we'll wrap with uh, who led our conversation today. Joe, you did a great job. It was very, very Oprah-esque of you today. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I mean, I thank you for, you know, letting me be a part of this conversation. I think it's really, really incredibly important. And, you know, the one thing that I think 
I often heard throughout my time when I was, you know, work doing CIT training and police reform was that the officers were coming up to me at the end of the 40 hours and they were saying like, that was really good. I learned a lot and I feel like I'm just better equipped to go out and, and, and talk with people now and to, um, you know, to deal with the situation. And I often was told about personal experiences of friends and family and um, how they just hope that, you know, that, that are struggling too. And so it was very personal for, for many of the officers. And it's one more, you know, I always framed it as it's one more tool for the tool belt, right? When you got, when you can use it, use it, right? Why not? And if it works and as long as safety is not in question, then, then let's try it. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And, and I think, I think just to parrot on what everybody said, um, and piggyback what, what on every, you can record that or keep it or edit it out. Oh, I have to, I look, I think everyone across the country needs to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> All over the world, they're going to All hear over it. the world. I know nothing. Yeah, at first you give me an Oprah. Yeah, Stephen, this is totally your fault. You compared to Oprah. Now, right. I'm, 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 now I'm falling apart. Just F the whole thing up. Um, <laughs> one more time, yeah. Uh, but but I think to piggyback on on what everybody is saying, you know, I found a lot when I when I do CIT trainings um, all over the country, and and one of the things that that officers um, will come up and say, and and what's super interesting to me is I get to be a part of of first responder and law enforcement teams that are multicultural, they are multi-diverse, they have all different backgrounds, they have, some of them have their own trauma and experiences with, with mental illness or loved ones with mental illness. Um, and, and just that, that it, it's almost, you can see this sigh of relief of like, oh, okay, I, I understand a little bit more. And that's always for me the takeaway is if one person, you know, walks up to me or I get emails, you know, all the time and they say, I understand a little bit more, even though the outcome may not have gone the way I wanted it to go, right? I, I felt like I had more, more, like Sarah said, tools, right? Um, and, and, you know, to Rebecca's point, right, that, you know, I hear a lot from the officer's perspective, I'm worried that that's how I'm going to be perceived, right? I just want to help. And I don't want to be perceived as being the boogeyman or, or somebody that's going to hurt, you know, hurt someone in crisis. And so, you know, to me, that's what reform is, you know, we're talking about, you know, helping our communities, helping people and helping our officers come together and have this conversation. We, you know, it, it ha we have to start somewhere. And um, sounds like Chad, you, you know, you're doing an amazing job doing that. And, you know, as always, Rebecca and Steven, thanks for having me on the show. And I know we'll wrap later, but it's always it's always fun. No, thank you. 
Um, you know, this has been, like I said, a very good conversation. And Joe, don't worry about the stutter. You know how many times I've made, like, you know, mistakes on this show. And, uh, and I just laugh them all and uh, laugh them off and leave it in there because it's like, all right, well, we're talking about serious stuff. Like, we have to laugh at ourselves. Um, you know, Chad, have a fabulous weekend. And thank you for taking time to, to, to impart, you know, your wisdom and your, and your side into this conversation. And you're right, you know, we have to do this. You know, when I grew up, I tell people, all the time I believe in officer friendly and I had great relationships with officers in DC when I went to Ellington School of the Arts um I plugged them a little bit yeah I did uh and uh and um and they and they always knew because when I played hooky and went to Georgetown they always stopped rolled down their window and said get your butt back to school or you don't want me taking you and uh so and uh so it was always great and yep I turned around and ran right back to school with my cheesesteak in hand from uh, uh Philly Cheesecake Cheesesteak Factory but this is what it's about. And um, stories over stigma and building relationship and creating community. And thank you so much to everyone. Thank you for listening to another week of Bipolar Girl. In the words of Grammy award-winning artist from Africa, Amou Sangari, who I absolutely love, Confico, the uncertainty of things. You know, living with a mental illness or living with someone with a mental illness can be uncertain at times. But that's why we do this show. We do this show to create community and a place where you can express yourself and get knowledge. Right, honey? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole reason we have the show, right? Though, again, things might be uncertain, you can be certain that we're here for you. Godspeed and have a great week. Nope, we're we're back, Joe. Uh, if you're still on, um, I, I did the outro, but this is kind of an outtake. So I'm super excited about this show, just because of you know, you know, having these intentional conversations in in the community is is just like is is so important. Joe, you're back with us. Yep, you're here. Can you hear me? I can. I can't hear you. Are you there? Am I going deaf? Well, you know, so I, um, while Joe gets her mic sort of back up, you know, it was, it was such a great conversation with Joelle led with uh, Chad and Sarah. I mean, and it's, it's so important to have these conversations. I believe these conversations are very important to the wider dialogue as well. We have to have very um, good relationships with our law enforcement community and our law enforcement, law enforcement community needs to know that we have their back and that they have our best interests at heart and based on this conversation we i believe we have greater understanding about how things operate within a mental health space because it's very emotional and it's charged and it can it can turn left or right at any moment but it's very serious when you have a department like montgomery county uh police department that takes it very serious and uh, and um, I just can't be happier with this conversation. Joe, you are you with us? I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you. I can hear you well. What a great conversation you led. Oh, thanks. You you too. I mean, I, um, Sergeant Sergeant Chad is is amazing, and that program is just so impressive. Um, you know, Sarah and I hung up and just kept talking and talking. It's like, oh, we could do this and oh, we could implement that and um, what great ideas. And, and so, 
it's nice to know that that people and and especially especially first responders and law enforcement are taking this seriously and, and trying to make a change. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, mental health is not going anywhere. Individuals, you know, needing um, mental health services is certainly not going anywhere. So we have to develop strategies about how we do that and how we deal with that in the community. If anything, they're getting more and more out there because we're becoming more and more educated about what exactly is, you know, a mental health illness, you know, because a lot of people were just like, oh, that's just Uncle Joe. Right. Exactly. You know, you know, after our, after our, um, after we recorded this show, I had a conversation with one of our members at the chamber and I won't say their name, but they happened to have a very traumatic situation several years ago. And one reason why this individual decided to run for office, right, was because of this situation. And this individual said to me, if we just had strong services in the community, perhaps this would have prevented X from happening. And and that's what I feel like we're trying to do. We're trying to just create an environment where we can help prevent X from happening in the future. Yeah. And it, it with so many things that, you know, like Rebecca said, oh, that's just Uncle Jim, you know, especially when we're talking about trauma and PTSD, complex PTSD, um, people sort of starting to re-socialize after the pandemic. There's so, there is so much um, there and being aware of what we're actually, you know, we as a community, right, are actually looking at and how we can best support community members is, is key. Right. Absolutely. It, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, what a great show. Well, th- I mean, we certainly could have probably 12 of these shows. Mm. And, uh, to, you know, to move the needle along. Um, but where do we go from here, Joe? Like, what? how do we get other police departments to, to, to at least listen? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I, I'd love to, to ask, uh, you know, Sergeant Chad uh, that question, because I'm, I'm sure he has some great ideas. I think for me, it's, you know, if you're listening and you're interested, whether you're... Um, you know, a a member of the community, somebody struggling with mental illness um, or first responder law enforcement, uh, every police department, sheriff's department in every county, city, state has a behavioral response team or unit. Um, They have a critical incident training team or program, which is that acronym CIT. Um, there are people, it, it may only be a person, but but there is somebody to reach out to and say, hey, you know, what's our community officers doing about this? You know, um, you know, if somebody ha- is suffering with, with PTSD or, or bipolar or mental illness, who is willing to go and talk to their local um, law enforcement, first responder community, calling NAMI and saying, hey, you know, who can you get me in touch with? I, I want to go talk to somebody about how we're handling this problem. I think it really is a. It starts with grassroots and making those connections. Um, what people in in you know Philly, D.C., San Francisco, Chicago, L.A., New York, right? What uh, uh, New York City? What what these police departments see on an everyday basis sometimes is more than any one officer 
officer will see in a 20-year career in a small community. And so that isn't to, to belittle or, or dismiss anyone. It's just to say, you know, hey, go to those small communities, go talk to them and, and ask, what are we doing for our, our community members here? Because every community also has people struggling with mental illness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, I think there's nothing more to be said this week um, in this outtake session. Uh, honey, do you want to take say anything? This is the first time we've ever done sort of an after the show show. Um, you know, we didn't do song this week. Um, this is the end of the season. We had a crazy season three and it's been wacky. Like we, we got Joe and Amy and everybody's on the team. We're trying to elevate this show so you know we'll work on uh, some serious planning and rebecca's trying to heal yeah i'll do better next time i promise um <laughs> <laughs> um i think i just i'm glad that we're ending the show with this or ending the season with this show right i think this was an important show to have and it's kind of letting us go out with a bang and like you said we could have 10 more shows on this subject. Right. I mean, you know, it is, who knows what next year will bring and may, or late, you know, in September when we start back up again, but, you know, maybe we will try, you know, you know, when we have the symposium, we'll try to have this one of the, one of the topics of conversation. I just, but you know, I want it to be authentic and I want it to be real, but I don't want it to be combative and, and oppositional. No, it's not about that. Yeah. It's not about that. Anyway. Joe, what are you planning on doing this summer? Oh my gosh! Um, Does she leave? No, I'm here. No, Can it, you says she's, it says she's connected. She, but she has stuff going on. So. That's true. She's been dealing with some crises. Listen, everyone out there, thank you so much for supporting us this this third season. Um, supporting us through COVID. Uh, you know, everything we do is about creating community. And we'll see you in September. Honey, do you want to say anything? No, I think you've said it all. Um, we will see you guys in September. Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for sticking with us, guys. Have a great, great, great uh, summer. Summer. Bipolar Girl Productions presents Bipolar Girl here in the week. Just walk into a pool.